Father, thank you so much for these men. Thank you for this morning and thank you for the topic that we're going to go through. And I just pray you'd help us to uh, have a good understanding coming out of uh, uh, the things we're talking about today about Adam and Christ. And um, I pray that this would uh, accrue to our benefit and help us to understand more fully our salvation uh, this great plan of redemption, and also uh, to instruct us personally and help us to uh, be the, the men that you've called us to be. We uh, ask for your help uh, in learning and understanding and then applying it to our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, we have been talking about how, uh, how God relates to humanity, which means we have uh, introduced this concept of covenant, a covenant being an agreement between two people who voluntarily or two persons who voluntarily obligate and bind themselves to each other for the purpose of fending off an evil or obtaining a good. Uh, that's Bob Inc's, uh language there. Um, so we've been talking about covenant. We've been talking about uh, two covenants or two kinds of covenants, covenants of works and covenants of grace, uh, two covenants of works, we said. Uh, that are based in justice, the concept of justice, reciprocity. Uh, so we have the covenant of redemption. That's a, a pre-temporal, uh, eternal covenant between the Father and the Son for uh, the redemption of uh, God's people. And then the covenant of works that, uh, you know, after creation, covenant between God and Adam. And then we've also mentioned the covenants of grace uh, that are unfolded in the biblical historical covenants, uh, particularly revealed in the Abrahamic covenant administrated through the Mosaic covenant and the new covenant. Today, I want to get into the topic of federalism. Who's heard of that topic of federalism? All right. So a few of you. Federalism <clears throat> sometimes is better known as representative headship. Uh, and we want to talk about the unique, the unique role that Adam played and that Jesus has played as well. So federalism or representative headship is how the covenant of works, life through obedience, death through disobedience. This is how the outcome of the covenant of works is applied to us. And it's also how the outcome of Christ's representative headship applies to us in and through the covenant of grace. Our discussion uh, for this morning <clears throat> is going to interact primarily with an article written by John Murray called the Adamic Administration or the Administration of Adam. And uh, if you would like an electronic copy of that article, just shoot us an email because I'm going to be talking about it today. It'll be kind of in involved in what I'm talking about today and next week. So if you'd like an electronic copy of that article uh, by John Murray, shoot us an email at the office. We'll send it to you. Um, and you can look that over, uh, read it. I, I, would, I would just say whether or not you intend to read it soon for the purpose of our discussion and understanding here, it's, it's a good one to have for your files. So shoot us an email, and uh, if we get enough of you, we'll just, we'll just send it out in mass. Um, but uh, the Adamic administration. So any, anyone know the biblical origin of that term or the biblical counterpart of that term administration? Um, <clears throat> I didn't expect you would, but uh, it, it's a real short rabbit trail. But let's just get uh, into uh, the scripture just real quick for me to show you this. Ephesians chapter 1, Ephesians 1.10, also in Ephesians 3.9, and then 1 Timothy 1.4. But just look at Ephesians. 
In Ephesians 1.10, Paul, well, let me just go back to, let me start back in verse 7. In him, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. That term, plan, for the fullness of time. It's a, that's the concept of administration. Go to Ephesians 3 and verse 9. Well, going back to verse 8, to me, though I'm the very least of the uh, saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan, there's the word again, of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. And then it goes on from there. So the term plan, and then in, you don't need to turn there, but in 1 Timothy 1.4, Paul wants Timothy to remain in Ephesus so that he may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. That word stewardship. So plan in Ephesians 1.10, Ephesians 3.9, and then 1 Timothy 1.4, it's the term stewardship. The term that that's being translated there is the term oikonomia. Uh, and it's translated plan in the ESV, administration in the CSB and the NAS. The King James Version, anybody know the King James Version translation of that term, oikonomia? What's that? Good order in King James? Might be New King James. Well, the King James Version is dispensation. So dispensation is oikonomia, and that's where, the, that's where the concept of dispensationalism comes from, is this biblical term oikonomia. The, a, a dispensation or an administration, a, a plan, an unfolding of a stewardship, that's the concept. That's where the, the, the dispensationalism comes from. It's the attempt to, by theologians, to work out the theology of this plan for the fullness of time, this mystery that for ages was hidden in God to understand this really an eternal plan of redemption. So whether you agree or disagree with dispensationalism as a system uh, of theology, I just want to make sure you guys who lean covenantal, covenantal actually know what you're making fun of when you make, make fun of dispensationalism. Uh, I know that there's a, a, a lot of reason for that because of the uh, popular kind of pop culture dispensationalism, which has been portrayed in fiction and movies and things like that. But there's actually a very legitimate um, study of dispensation, which is this term plan or administration the administration of God's grace in salvation. So this dispensationalism is a noble endeavor that's taken up by all theologians, and John Murray by, is by no means a dispensational uh, theologian. He's a covenantal theologian. So what is this ad Adamic administration? Why does it matter? Why are we talking about the Adamic administration, the Adamic 
dispensation or stewardship um, and why does it matter? The Adamic administration is how John Murray describes and explains Adam's unique role as the federal head of the human race, a, a place that God gave him and didn't give to any other human being except Adam, made him the federal head of the human race. And this matters for several reasons. I'll give you probably a number of other reasons as well, but I'll just give you these three. Number one, this concept of federal headship, which we see in the endemic administration, we're going to see it in Christ as well, but it matters for three reasons because it shows that there are only two men in the human race with this unique role as federal head, Adam and then Jesus. So just two men. It's important to understand that. It also shows the principle of governance by means of representation. Representative government comes from this. And then thirdly, it shows the superior headship of Jesus over Adam and then the ground of our security of salvation in him. Those are important. They're big concepts, important concepts. They're fundamental, foundational to our thinking. They have practical implications in how we live and teach and all those things. So we'll try to get to some of that at the very end. I'm going to start, though, by interacting with um, some of Murray's introduction. But first, I want to go back to a couple concepts and ask you a, a question or two. Let me ask you where some concepts come from. First of all, where do we get the idea that two people sign a contract and both of them should uphold their contractual obligations? Where do we get that idea? Why should they enter into a contractual relationship together? We operate that way all the time, but what makes this a matter, uh, a, a legitimate, like what makes this legitimate? What makes this a matter of moral right and wrong when someone doesn't uphold their end of the bargain? Wayne. Um, going back to early contracts, um, you know, all, all the way back to like the Abrahamic days, um, like literally you would walk between two pieces of an animal that has been split and there's symbology there that says there is a consequence if either one of us walks away from this agreement what has been done to this animal will be done to us if either one of us breaks it mm -hmm. you know i mean that's a very powerful compelling element even in a culture where there's not uh, at the time, a unifying sense of morality or a unified basis for morality is a lot of idolatry and a lot of small cultures. Okay, so what makes it legitimate, though, to, to pass through pieces and say, so let it be done to me if I don't keep this up? I mean, go back. I mean, weren't people worshiping fire and wind and everything else? Was so that legitimate? or <clears throat> So why is it legitimate? Uh, what, what, what legitimizes that practice? It's, it's a form what legitimizes that? Yeah, I probably don't have the answer you're looking for. And in that case, you know, it, it's it's by both people coming to agreement. That this is, this right. is what we're facing as a threat. Yeah. So you could just say it's um, it's a social construct. <laughs> well, there's there's, there's an element of that. <laughs> Well, I think, like, written on the heart, that we just we just sense that it's right for somebody to keep their word, and, and we expect that of them. And so we have an internal sense that, if I have an internal sense that 
I want what you own. Does that legitimize that? Yes. In the context. Yeah. That's that's where we're all heading right now, isn't it? Uh, reparations. Uh, what you have, I want. Uh, I saw a hand back there. Yeah, is it John? Uh, would this go? I, I'm thinking about even Adam and Eve when they're in the garden, when God told them, you know, okay, okay this is a deal, and also the fact that there were consequences. Okay. That he brought out right there in the beginning that if you do this, this is the consequences. Okay. And it seems like every deal or whatever, there's always consequences. Okay, good. So we do have a, a, a basis for this internal sense, as Nick put it, of the really is the law of God written on our heart, but this internal sense, our conscience either accusing or excusing, but this internal sense, we see an objective reality in Genesis 2 like you're talking about. We've got two parties. They, there's, a, there's an agreement. It's voluntary. Uh, there are consequences for disobedience. We'll talk about an implied consequence of life for obedience or blessing for obedience. So, um, so yeah, John's, John's put, his, put his finger on it. And we'll, I, I saw other hands, but uh, just for the sake of time, we'll keep going. So this, <clears throat> this idea of fulfilling contractual obligations this, this passing through the pieces of a cut up animal and saying, so may it be done to me or you if we don't uh, uphold our end of the, the contract here, um, comes from a concept of covenant. And that covenant, as John has said, goes back to Genesis 2. We've been discussing this the past two sessions. So we have the same expectation for human agreements, whether a marital covenant between a man or a woman, business agreements between mutually interested parties, uh, international treaties uh, between two nations. When a nation doesn't uphold its end of the bargain, we say, foul, throw a flag, blow a whistle. We all sense that. Where do we get that sense? It goes right back to how God, uh, I think the way John put it is, that's just the way God set it up. We all have a sense that that's right. Here's another question for you. Where do we get the idea that one person can validly represent the interests of another or act on behalf of another. Where does the idea of, well, I mean, we all say we're, we live in a representative democracy, right? This isn't a pure democracy, right? It's a representative democracy. We have represent, people who represent us. Where, where do we get the idea that that's okay, <laughs> that that's good? Where, whether a representative democracy or we see it in a monarchy, you know, a king, who a king represents a people, acts on behalf of the people. Why is that legitimate? Why would we say that that's okay? And don't say, well, we said it's not okay. That's why we rebelled and came and started this country. Uh, we still have the same concept of representation, don't we? Where, why is that okay? Is it just a good idea? Is it a social construct? I'm just kind of... Am I asking the question correctly? Because out of this room, uh, y'all are giving me stares like, I have no idea what you're talking about. Okay. Uh, God has given us structures to do governmental um, organization. I, I don't know the term, but, but just through governmental systems, there's a structure that God puts in place for how he wants to maintain um, control uses that structure that okay so that's are we saying that like the u.s constitution is divinely uh revealed 
No, we're not. God ordained? No, but, but in, the, in the way that, like, God has instituted governmental authorities. Um, okay. He, he, he is over that governmental authority, but nonetheless institutes those to work out. Okay. So you see the, that God has given the institution of government. And government is by nature what? Representative? It, I guess I would say it's representative of uh, authority, but only from the, from the purview or, or what God allows the government to, to exercise or not exercise. Okay, all right. So there's legitimacy and an illegitimacy of use of authority, but you can see God has revealed that in some way. Okay, Bill. Oh, no, you go. What God said, he gave them dominion. Uh-huh. Now, who's he talking to? And who, you know, do, does a certain man have this dominion, or does all mankind have this dominion? Yeah, well, that's, a, that's actually a very interesting question, John. Um, there's, there's a debate about that, about, uh, you know, our dominion theology and dominionism, and uh, do we all, each one of us, uh, run around, you know, wielding dominion, or is there one who's represent, who represents to exercise dominion, or is dominion exercised through that one? So it's a good question. But you just said he gave them dominion. We see something, there's something there, right? And there's something back to Daniel's point about how governance uh, is represented. Yeah, Bill? Yeah, this may be a different way than you want to go, but you, you think about God creating man in his image. So there's image bearing. So even man as an image bearer of God becomes representative in terms of the, not incarnation in the Christ sense, but in, in the idea that there is, there is a representation of man bearing God's image. So representation of the image of God in mankind and that is supposed to be covering the entire earth, yes. Good, good, yeah. Bruce? How much does this relate back to when the children of Israel uh, left Egypt? God gave them you know, commands and various different things to structure their, their culture or their, <clears throat> their, their ways, you know, they represented these kinds of things, whether it was when it came to judging, whether they separated, hundreds and fifties and those kinds of things. How much of that relate to the structure that God gave Moses in that time? Because you see, because yeah. otherwise they were just a very chaotic. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So you see this structure that God tries to set in place uh, and how they were to conduct themselves, relate with themselves, and of course relate with God. Well, yeah, you're, you're spot on that there is, there is interwoven into all government, all governance. And, and certainly Moses is a mediator, Aaron and his priesthood. Uh, you see, even in uh, Exodus 18, where he appoints 70 elders uh, to represent and to judge. So there's representation of justice, representation of righteousness. That's, that's God's righteousness that's meted out through the justice system, you could say, of Moses, of the uh, Mosaic economy. So absolutely, there's representation going on there. But where do we boil it down to? Uh, goes back to this, let, let, let's just take for the sake of an illustration and make it simple. Take a monarchy, <clears throat> we have one king, 
He signs a treaty with another king and the people of the land of each of those kings are expected to abide by that treaty that the one king has made with the other king, right? So the people aren't, aren't supposed to attack, go to war against that other king and his land and his people. Uh, otherwise, that's a violation of the treaty that the one king made with the other king. Uh, when one king goes to war with the other king, people are expected to fight those battles. Um, so we see that principle of representative headship or federal headship and <clears throat> we see the, the co- concept, just like the concept of covenant, this comes from the way God established the principle of governance from the very beginning. So once again, this concept of federal headship is predicated on an inner Trinitarian reality, the covenant of redemption, but it's uh, this, this concept of governance, this concept of representation, whether it's the image, us bearing the image of God, that's representation, but in Adam in particular, there's a principle of covenant in how God interacted with Adam. There's also a, a principle of representation or headship, him in the role representing the human race. So with that as a introduction, let me get to Murray's introduction. I had to give that introduction for Murray's introduction. You know this is gonna be hard. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, It won't be too hard. We're just going to cover one concept, federalism here. So here's how Murray begins. And again, if you want this article to review this later, please send an email to the office. He begins this way. Man was created in the image of God, a self-conscious, free, responsible, religious agent. Such identity implies an inherent, native, inalienable obligation to to love and serve God, with all the heart, soul, strength, and mind. This God could not but demand, and man could not but owe. Demand what? Owe what? Love and service to God. Okay? No created rational being can ever be relieved of this obligation. All that man is and does has a reference to has reference to the will of God. Okay? So far, so good, right? Being created in God's image means Adam was a self-conscious, free, responsible, religious agent. And as such, he's obligated to use his freedom to do his duty, to love and serve God. In fact, we could say that true freedom is the freedom to do your duty. It's the freedom to love and serve God. That is actual freedom. Libertarian free will that we're talking about with the ability to sin with, with free license That's actually enslavement, not freedom. So everything that this world calls free, it's actually enslavement. What God calls freedom is to love and serve him, to do our duty. Continue with Murray. But man was also created good. Good in respect of that which he specifically is. He was made upright and holy and therefore constituted for the demand endowed with the character enabling him to fulfill all the demands devolving upon him by reason of God's propriety in him and sovereignty over him. So what he's saying there is being created good, mankind being created good in true righteousness and holiness, God equipped Adam to fulfill his duty. So he commanded, but he also equipped him to be able to do it. Make sense? He didn't, he didn't, he didn't command him something he wasn't equipped to do. All right. So he equipped Adam to fulfill his duty, which is to love and serve God. Here's Murray again, continuing. 
As long as man fulfilled these demands, his integrity would have been maintained. He would have continued righteous and holy. In this righteousness, he would be justified, that is, approved and accepted by God, and he would have life. Righteousness, justification, life is an invariable combination of the government and judgment of God. There would be a relation that we may call perfect legal reciprocity. Pausing here, <clears throat> by perfect legal reciprocity, Murray means by Adam fulfilling his duty to love and serve God, he would have continued in righteousness and holiness, and justice would mean God's approval. Justice would mean the reward of life. So if Adam did his duty, justice would have been that God grants him life, continues to give him life. He continues in the life that he had. So Murray points out, though, uh, something that is something that is not yet complete in Adam's condition, if I could put it that way. Murray, Murray says this, this relation, Adam's relation to God in his original created state, this relation falls short in two respects of what may be readily uh, what may readily be conceived of as higher. Number one, it is a contingent situation. Adam's situation, when he was created, there in the garden, obligated before God to serve and love him, that's a contingent situation. One of righteousness, but mutably so. By mutable, I mean changeable. It's a changeable condition. And... Um, but mutably so, and likewise of justification in life. So justification, life, that could change. There is always the possibility of lapse on man's part, and with the lapse, loss of integrity, justification, life, the exchange of these for unrighteousness, condemnation, and death. Unrighteousness, condemnation, death, we see that's what actually happened. That's what we're actually living in, right? So we can see that Adam's original condition, it wasn't immutable. It wasn't unchangeable. It did change. It did change because he did fall, okay? So that's one thing that's not great about Adam's original state. He's, it's a, contingent, a contingent situation. Number two, there's the absence of full-orbed communion with God. So Adam had communion with God, Perfect communion, but was it a, a full-orbed communion with God? Murray says no. He says, there is the absence of full-orbed communion with God in the assurance of permanent possession and increasing knowledge. Okay? In other words, because the situation in which Adam was created was contingent, that is, keeping his status and blessings dependent on his perfect, flawless obedience, First, he could lose it, and second, which he did, by the way, and second, that undermined his assurance of permanently keeping his status and maintaining perfect communion with God. Now, is that what God intended for humanity from the very beginning, from eternity? I know, Nicholas, you don't like this term, but from eternity past? Is that what God intended for us from, the, from his decree? No, it's not. So what we're discussing today is meant to help us understand Adam's role as our federal head, to help us interpret his fall in light of Jesus' role as our federal head, in light of God's greater work intended for his son to accomplish for his people. So 
My hope for the end result of all this is that we have a greater depth of understanding about God's plan of redemption, a greater appreciation, a deeper appreciation for what he's done uh, for us in Christ, and then a greater sense of a security of our salvation. I hope that that all uh, accrues to your benefit today. So I want to like to take a look at a couple of scripture references so we can see how God assigned to, assigned to two men, to Adam and to Jesus, the role of federal head over a people. This is the, go, go to Genesis chapter 2, first of all, and this is just, just going to get a, um, a foundation to the concept um, here at the beginning. But this is the evidence, uh, biblical evidence, that helps us to look more carefully at what God did with Adam at the very beginning of creation and how God established the principle of governance in this concept of federal headship. So, several texts, if you would just jot these down, Genesis 2, Romans 5, and 1 Corinthians 15, but we're going to start with Genesis chapter 2 and verse 15. The Lord God took the man that he had just created, and he put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. So, work pre-fall, work is a good, work is very good, to work it, keep it. And then verse 16, the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So we have identified already in those verses what has been called the covenant of works. For our purposes, though, we want to see several things here, that God gave Adam a specific prohibition that applied to Adam and to his wife, Eve. God threatened death for disobedience, and the implication being that life, which Adam already had by virtue of being created by God, that life would continue as long as Adam continued in obedience. Okay? So the continuance of life is symbolized in the tree of life. Look at Genesis 2.9. So out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that's pleasant to the sight, good for food. The tree of life is in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So you see the, those two trees that symbolize, one symbolizes life and one symbolizes this this test, this probation that's going to come. Go to Genesis 3.21. This is um, kind of at the end here of, or uh, actually 3.22. Uh, this is after the curse on the serpent, the woman, and, and Adam. The Lord God said in verse 22, Behold, the man has become like one of us, and knowing good and evil, now lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever Therefore, the Lord God sent him away. Why do you send him away? Because he didn't want him to eat and live forever in a state of a fall with a sin nature. That would be actually a curse to live forever in that condition. For us to live forever in our condition with, a, with the sin principle still coursing through us is not a good thing. And God intended something better. So that's why he drove him out of the garden and didn't allow him to partake of that tree of life and thus live forever. So we'll talk about that a little more later. But we see, the, uh, we see this principle of life, this tree of life, the, the life symbolized in the tree of life, this eternal life. And if Adam had obeyed and continued in obedience, then he would have been fixed in that state of life. And the reward of life would not have been 
um, grace, it would have been by works, by his obedience, by his faithfulness, right? So Adam here, what we see here in Genesis 2, 15 to 17, is we see this, this, um, this, prince, this, this test this given to Adam, right? It's given to Adam. Eve isn't even on the scene, but she's going to participate, as we'll see in Genesis chapter 3, in breaking this covenant. But we see this given to Adam. Now, why do we say that Adam acts in a representative or a federal capacity? How does he represent the rest of the human race? How is he head of the human race in what happens in Genesis chapter 2? Well, we see that when we go to Romans chapter 5. So go to Romans 5 and verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass, for if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. The free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more with those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. You see a concept of through one man, some either curse or benefit accrues to the many, right? So you got the one and the many. The one did something and the many have the consequence. That's the principle I want you to see just for right now. Okay, now go over to the next book, 1 Corinthians in chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15, you can go to verse 45, but I'll just read this in verse 22. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. So again, you have two representative heads, Adam and Christ, Adam and Jesus. Look at verse 1 Corinthians 15, 45. Thus it is written, and this is the concept of there's one kind of body and then another kind of body, and he, come, he comes to the end of this and says, thus it's written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became, and this is talking about Jesus, right? Talking about Christ. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. It is not the spiritual that's first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. 
And as was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Obviously, that, that promise is made to those who are in Christ, those who are Christians, those who have eternal life from him, those who are in Christ, bear the image also of the man of heaven. So you can see, let me just go right to Murray's article and explanation. He says, analogy is drawn between Adam and Christ. They stand in unique relations to mankind. There's none before Adam. He's the first man. There is none between. Christ is the second man. There is none after Christ. He is the last Adam, as we just read. Here we have an embraceive construction of human relationships. We know also that in Christ there is representative relationship and that obedience successfully completed has its issue in righteousness, justification, life for all he represents. So a period of obedience successfully completed by Adam would have secured eternal life for all represented by him. Okay? So the concept of the one act and something coming out of that one act, a consequence, either for obedience or disobedience, but that consequence coming to Adam's progeny. What's Adam's progeny? The human race. The entire human race in Adam, in the loins of Adam, you could say, but him being not just, not just by you know, seminal headship, meaning his physical progeny, but actually his representative headship, his federal headship. So him representing all mankind, all of our kind. His act, whether it went one way or the other, his act is going to accrue to all of us. That's the way God set it up. In the same way, we see that our salvation is dependent on that same principle. One man acting, and him being the head of a new race, Jesus acts, and his obedience secures our salvation all of us who are in Christ, okay? Here's Murray again. Hey, everybody with me so far? Give me a nod or shake your head vehemently from side to side so that I can hear it, uh, and then I will uh, stop it. John? So in a sense, we were in Adam. So literally, we did the act in Adam. Um, so the, the only reason I would say no to that is because we didn't consciously volitionally do the act Adam did okay so in the same if because if we say that then we would violate a principle like in Ezekiel 18 or 33 where the the father the father sins and the son pays the penalty kind of thing where it's no every man stands on his own before God the father does his thing the son does his thing if the son even though he was born into a family of disobedience, if the son chooses righteousness, well, then that's, that's the son's reward. The son's, so there is no passing down of generational sins and all that. What we're talking about is this, this inherited guilt is, a, is inherited not by, not by our volitional participation in, in Adam's sin, even born of the sin nature, but why is that given to us? Because of, yeah, that's what's accrued to all of us. But, it's a, but the guilt is accrued to us 
by the principle of representation, by the principle of federalism. But he also inherited it. True. It's imputed to us, though. Yes. We didn't actually do it. Okay. We inherited the consequences of it. Yes, and, and, and I can hear in your tone exactly the question I want to ask at the end. So hold, hold on to your sense of indignation about this. Let it fester in you. Let it feed your... What's that, uh, what's that guy, the emperor, you know, in Star Wars? Feed your anger, you know? I just want you to brew on that for a bit. <laughs> All right, we done. We go screwing around. There's more serious stuff here. So here's Murray again. The Adamic administration is construed as an administration in which God, by a special act of providence, established for man the provision whereby he might pass from the status of contingency, that is able to lose, right? Pass from the status of contingency to one of confirmed and indefectible holiness and blessedness. That is, from passe pecare to passe non pecare, and passe non pecare to non passe pecare. Now that's Latin, obviously, and it comes from Augustine's fourfold state of humanity. So I'll walk you through this real quick. Because of Adam, in the fall, man went from a state of passe pecare passe non pecare, okay? That is able to sin, so passe being the word able, and pecare referring to sin, so passe pecare means able to sin, passe non pecare means able not to sin. That was Adam's original condition. He was able to choose one direction or another. He has this covenant, he enters in, he's, he's, he's brought into it by God, but he has a freedom of whether or not he is going to to obey this covenant or disobey it. Okay, so he's in a state of passe pecare, passe non pecare. He's able to sin, he's able not to sin. And so, Adam in the fall, mankind went from that state into a state of non passe non pecare, that is not able not to sin. That's what the Bible teaches us about our condition. As we're born into this world with a sin nature, we are not able not to sin. So we talk about the freedom of the will. Is man, does man have free will? Yeah, but it depends on how you describe that. Yes, he has a free will, but he's free within the realm of a sin nature. So he has all freedom to do whatever he wants in that realm. Salvation is when he's plucked out of that sphere and put into the sphere of righteousness. So in the fall, we fell into a state of non posse, non pecare, that is not able not to sin. Isaiah says in Isaiah 64, 6, even our righteousness is as filthy rags before God. So someone who is in that sphere of sin, even trying to do righteous acts, present that before God for acceptance. God says, don't present these filthy rags for me and call it righteousness. In redemption, mankind returns to a state of passe pecare, passe non pecare, able to sin and able not to sin, right? You're able to sin and you're able not to sin. You're redeemed, but you're in a current condition right now in the state of redemption of being able to sin and able not to sin, but in glorification. 
And this is our hope of full and final redemption, of completion in Christ. We enter into a final state, secured in Christ, a state that he is in right now, of non posse peccare, that is not able to sin. Anybody looking forward to that? I can tell you your wife is. <laughs> so John Murray says, this is God's intent from before the foundation of the world for his people. So now that we understand those terms, I'm gonna read that paragraph again. The Adamic administration is construed as an administration in which God, by a special act of providence, established for man the provision whereby he might pass from the status of contingency to one of confirmed and indefectible holiness and blessedness. That is from posse peccare and posse non peccare, that is able to sin, able not to sin, to non posse peccare, not able to sin. So, this is what was set up with Adam at the very beginning, this possibility of life. Adam departed from it, Christ has secured it, okay? So first, Murray designates this administration with Adam as a special act of providence. Saying it's a special act of providence simply means this is something that is unique, something that's non-repeatable. It's something for Adam, not intended for every single one of us born into this world, it was intended for Adam. Second thing he's pointing out is that this administration came in the form of a test, came in the form of a probation for Adam, in order that he would move from a state of contingency to a state of confirmation. Fixed in holiness, therefore fixed in the blessing of God's permanent approval, full-orbed communion is what he called it before. This, this communion, full-orbed, being one where there's great assurance, an assurance that we have with God that this is never going to change. Adam didn't have that in his original state. We have that in Christ, okay? We're gonna look more fully at the, and carefully at the test and probation next time. Third thing, this administration would allow Adam, as he represents the entire human race, to move the race, the whole race, from a condition of being able to sin and able not to sin, to one in which he would uh, in which no one would ever be able to sin, not ever. That was what was offered to him. That's what, that's what God set up in Genesis 2. Just a little spoiler alert, if you haven't read the book, uh, that didn't happen. <laughs> Adam blew it, um, and here we are, okay? Any questions on that? Okay, good. I'm going to test you on this later. No. So we're coming, we're coming to the end and then we're gonna discuss a couple things. So Murray writes that Adam was constituted head of the human race and acted accordingly, we necessarily infer from the following considerations and there are four of them. Number one, the consequence of Adam's sin and Eve's sin fell upon them, which is death. And we, said in, we saw this in Romans very clearly, it's fallen on the rest of us as well. Death has fallen on the rest of us. Even though none of us have been subjected to the same probation, the same temptation that they had, the same fall, we're, we're, we've entered into a state where it's, everything's fallen already, right? We don't have a tree of life, tree of the knowledge of good and evil put before us. What happened with Adam and Eve is completely unique, right? 
So why do we suffer the same consequence? Death. Because we are in racial solidarity with Adam. Okay? God sovereignly appointed Adam to be our federal head, to be our representative, to represent all of humanity. It's the way God set it up. That's the first thing. Second thing. Paul assumes this principle of racial solidarity, and we read that, didn't we, in Romans chapter 5, verses 12 to 19, especially, 1 Corinthians 15, 22. Paul argues in those texts that the benefits merited by Jesus Christ accrue to us by the principle of imputation. And how do we see that imputation? Most clearly, in what already happened with Adam in the fall. Okay, we see the imputation. Just as the guilt of Adam's sin was imputed to us, even though we didn't personally commit that sin. So John, that's what I'm saying. Didn't, we didn't personally commit that sin. We didn't volitionally, even though I'm in Adam, in, in a sense, in, in Adam, in, in Adam and Eve, I didn't personally volitionally do that. And yet I'm guilty of Adam's sin. Why? Because of imputation. That guilt is imputed to us. And we can see that because all have sinned. We all continue sinning. In the same way, this is Paul's argument in Romans 5 and 1 Corinthians 15, so also the righteousness of Jesus' obedience is imputed to us even though we did not behave righteously. Jesus behaved righteously. Jesus fulfilled all of God's righteousness. He fulfilled all God's law. We didn't. And yet, his righteousness is validly, legitimately imputed to us by the principle of federalism, by the principle of representative headship. Here's the third point. Murray says the plan of redemption is erected on the principle of representative identification. And the parable, uh, parallel by which righteousness, justification, and life come to lost men is that exemplified in sin, condemnation, death through Adam. Okay? In other words, this is me talking here, kind of interpret this. God uses what we're already familiar with being born in this world as sinners. We're already familiar with sin, condemnation, and death. We see how that's imputed to us and came to us through Adam. And he uses that in Romans 5, especially to illustrate the plan of redemption and show us how salvation works. That Christ's work, his benefit, the benefits, the rewards, then accrue to our benefit. Same principle. Okay, the fourth point here is that Murray says, the principle of representation underlies all basic institutions of God in the world. The family, the church, and the state. In other words, solidarity and corporate relationship is a feature of God's government. We should expect the prototype to reside in racial solidarity. At least racial solidarity is congruous with what we find on a less inclusive scale in the other institutions of God's appointment. That's just a long way of saying, look, we see this principle of representation everywhere. We see it in the family, we see it in government, we see it in institutions. Why do we see this? It goes right back to the beginning. We understand it because that's the way God set it up. We, we understand it intuitively. Representation seems valid to us. We just have this kind of in our hearts because that's how we were designed to see it that way, okay? Now let's talk about this. What would you say to someone who hears this kind of teaching as John may have and hears that he's guilty of original sin because Adam sinned as his representative 
And he says, that's not what? Fair. That's not fair. What would you say to that person who cries out, that's not fair? That I should be guilty of what Adam did? Jeff. I didn't say that's not fair. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you were thinking it, though. (laughs) You know, I've I've had this discussion with a couple people before, and my simplest argument usually comes down to, you would have done the same. Because we, we all have sinned. Go back to back to Romans there. All of sin falls short of the glory of God. So even in our fault, it shows we're fallen, if, if that makes sense. Sure. But I mean, that doesn't help enough, but it's a start. Yeah, and so, and, and I've answered the same way before. Um, that, look, you would have done the same. The, 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 the trouble I found with that is that what that's saying is that there is a fairness because we would have all done the same. But that's really not the point. The point, yeah, the point is that, is that this was a, I, I like Murray's term, by a special act of providence. There's something unique that God set up in Adam. And so it, I, I can't just say, well, look, if he would have put you in the role or me in the role, we would have done the same thing. No, but God didn't. And I want to set it up that way to say, God does what God does. And who's to argue with God? So number one, but, but, but it's not arbitrary either. There is a wisdom in this. We just have, even if, just because we don't understand what the wisdom is, doesn't mean we should attri- you know, attribute unfairness or injustice to God. And we shouldn't try to prove it by saying, well, let's take Devin or let's take, you know, Sebastian and put them in the same role and they would have done the same thing. Um, That's not really the issue. It's not that God looked down the quarters of time and said, I can't find one of them. (laughs) I guess I'll just use Adam, you know. No, he he pointed a special providence for Adam, unique, non-repeatable. And he set it up that way intentionally. Anybody else? Someone says to you, that's not fair. What are you going to say to them? Stop grumbling and complaining. Okay. <laughs> I love it. Straight to the point. Uh, you know. Yeah. I'd say fair would be um, getting God, God's justice. I'm glad he doesn't give us what's fair. Okay. That's for us, though. What about, uh, what about Adam? Wasn't, wasn't the principle of what, by which he set up everything with Adam based on fairness, based on justice? The question is, how is it fair that God then imputes Adam's guilt to us? Brian, you're going to answer that question? <laughs> no, I'm going to pass. <laughs> Chuck? I don't understand how um, the passage you quoted earlier from was it Ezekiel? You know, the son isn't liable for the sins of the father. Would you? What if somebody tells you that? I'm, I don't understand how to respond to something like that. Um, what? I'm I'm not understanding your compared to. Oh, because oh yeah, I'm talking. So I'm just basically saying that guilt is not inherited in a seminal way. Everybody stands on his own, stands or falls on his own before God. 
That's not what's happening in the principle of federal headship. It's not a seminal connection. It's not genetic. It's not passed down through, like, like our genes are passed down. Sin isn't transferred in that way. It's transferred by principle of headship. Representation. I can tell by the look on your face that's not satisfying to you. We'll pick it up another time. Yeah, Austin. You know, it's interesting because I've never heard the language of imputation be used for, for the way that Adam's fall affects us because I guess more the way I understood it was imputation is talking about works done by somebody else given to us. It's an accounting term I think you've said, right? Where what Adam did fundamentally changed our nature. And so it seemed, am I wrong to think that's more than imputation, that that's an actual effectiveness that, you know, we, we're not sinners because we sin, but we sin because we are sinners. Our natures were fundamentally changed. Both happened, though. There is an imputation, an imputation of the guilt. In that, that is a reckoning of the guilt. It's an accounting term that applies directly to the guilt, just as, just as the, the it's Romans 5. That's the argument in Romans 5. So both happened. It's not, a, it's not an either or proposition. It's both and. Yep. Good. Joe? So can you say like Adam was like our champion, like he was sinless. He was created by God in a state where he was perfect as far as man can be. Who, who among men can um, say they're as, as good as Adam? He's our champion. He goes out to represent us. And if he falls then what hope is there for anyone else to, be, to stand in his spot? We are accepting whatever his, um, the outcome of his decision is, we're not going to stand in his place and fight that battle any better than he did. Okay, that's true. And that's what Jeff was saying and how he answers the question as well. That's true. Um, but... We're, we're, we're not talking about whether we would done, have done any better. What you said before about Adam being, you, as you put it in, in champion terms, or like our king, our monarch, who acts on our behalf or as our representative, that's the idea. And, and yes, that is the idea. So that's, that's a good way to picture it. It's just our champion fell. And so the consequences of all that, <clears throat> you got it. Yeah. And you're going to accept whatever happens right. to David. Yeah, if you if you if you fail, we'll be your slaves, and if if I if I prevail, you'll be our slaves, kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. Chuck. Well, so isn't that fair? In our culture, where we struggle for autonomy so much and hate control, doesn't that kind of go back to the identity of God? You know, does the pot question the, the potter? Go. And so, That's ultimately, right. doesn't that? Well, what do you mean by fair? Doesn't that take us back to? The pot, the potter, and, yes. and God's sovereignty, and, and yes. to get to the bottom of that question. Very well said. To, to impugn God's character, because we in our individual autonomy uh, way of thinking is, is in unjust. He is justice itself. And so whatever God set up in the very beginning is fair. If we don't understand it, the problem is in us, the creature, the fallen creature, not in the creator. And so whatever God set up is just, is righteous, is perfect. That is the standard of justice, righteousness, and perfection. And furthermore, we're very thankful for this principle of imputation when it comes to Christ and his righteousness. 
when it comes to Christ and life. So that is where the answer has to stop. Shall the, shall the, the thing formed say to him who formed it, why have you made me thus? Shall any of us as creatures look back to the creator and say, why'd you create the world this way? We, so many benefits accrue to us, not just through this principle of imputation, but just through the principle of governance, covenant, representation, headship. This, there is benefit all over the place. There's also, because of sin, which perverts those things, there's also pain and sorrow attached to it as well. But that's because of sin, not because of how God set things up. Ryan, one more, and then we'll move on to a couple of other, other questions. Yeah, I just wonder if the illustration maybe goes along with what um, Joe was talking about. Is, like, Adam had, he had the two choices. You know, he had righteousness, he had, he could choose sin. And when, when Adam chose sin, as a result, we all lost access to be able to choose righteousness. So that's the imputation is that we don't even know what that looked like. We just have this. Yes, yeah, that's true. It's true, that's the effect. That's the effect on our nature. Yeah, in the in the Pasakari, um, Pasakari um, state, could he ever get to full non Pasakari state? Well, that's what we'll talk about next time because that's the that's the concept that we'll go into of this test, this probation, what was set up at the beginning, and and Murray and others would argue, yes, that was what was on offer. Even though God knew, that's not, that's not the, the final goal. The final goal is Christ and what Christ um, merited for us. That's, that's who God the Father intends to lift up is the Son. And that's the plan. And so, yes, the fall is part of God's design. It's part of his plan, his eternal plan from before the foundation of the world. But yes, it was a legitimate offer. And so that's what we want to come back to. So why does it do no good to protest the way things are? You might as well protest gravity and say, not fair. <laughs> but you all are sitting comfortably in your chairs and not floating into the sun while you say, that's not fair about gravity. Um, you benefit from gravity. You, you, you stand firmly on your own two feet or sit comfortably in your chairs because gravity exists. If you violate the principle of gravity and fall to your death, that's on you. <laughs> so, so, but God set things up in the physical world and the spiritual world in the way that he set it up. And it's a good and wise uh, design. So why do you think God set up our redemption like this? What, what is he doing? What's the wisdom involved? What's, what's the so what takeaway? Some of the takeaways you can say and how he established this principle of representation in Adam. I think it reveals who he is. You know, because when you look at all his attributes, you can see this in the plan that, that everything comes out, who he is, what he's like, because of this plan. So in a sense, he's God, and so he's just being God in what he's doing. God being God. And yes, we're, we're seeing there are, there, there are ways that God, he doesn't think consecutively like we do, right? But, 
But there's a way of God's thinking, a way of God's mind that is represented in the way the world is, in the way it's ordered, the way it's structured, the way it's, the way he designed and filled it, and, and the way he also made us. The way humans relate with one another images God. It tells us something about him. So yeah, precisely. That's one good thing we set up here, or a good thing we see in how this is set up here is one aspect of wisdom. What else? What else do you see? Yeah, Mike? It, it isn't it kind of like us being parents? And we make our kids do things when they're little, and they, they kind of go, I don't like that. And then when they get older, they go, oh, that's why you had me learn. Yeah, that's right. That's right. For anybody who saw Karate Kid, it's like, why am I doing the paint fence and wax on, wax off? <laughs> and he starts throwing blows at him. He's like, pew, 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 pew. Ah, oh, wax on, wax off. <laughs> I, anybody who hasn't seen Cry to Kid, there's some life lessons in that movie, right? <laughs> That's what parents are doing, right? Paint fence, wax, polished car, you know, we're doing all the, all the same stuff. Trying to teach our kids, and our kids are defiant and rebellious. They don't understand, but when they get older, they have to usually go through teen years and into their Got to, got to go through early 20s, probably about mid to late 20s is when they start saying, man, my parents aren't idiots after all. <laughs> they start having their own kids. That's right. That's what happens. <laughs> yeah. So, so yeah. So there is a, I just want to say this promotes a humility in our thinking. This should promote a, a humility in our thinking of our place in God's design and plan that we live underneath our federal head that we're subject to whatever our head did and that's in adam we're subject to that we live through the consequences of that but we're also subject to whatever happened in christ we're not we're not the bee's knees here we're not better than sliced bread each one of us lives under the humility of what was done what God designed, what God did, what he set up, what he established. And there's a sense in which we walk in humility knowing I'm underneath what was established for me by God. We, we need to live and think in that kind of humility. Look, look the, the other thing I'll say is just in the way God set this up, there, there's so much we could imagine here and, and, and think about, but we have a great appreciation of what God did in Christ, what Jesus did to take on the rescue operation for his people. So much, so much to unpack there, but that's really what the Gospels and the New Testament is all about. We see that in Romans chapter 5. The more you study that, the more you see what Jesus voluntarily took on for our redemption. It's a beautiful picture. What lessons are useful here in teaching our kids? Let's take a big concept like federalism. Say, okay, what now? What now are we teaching our children and grandchildren? What's what lessons do we have? Yeah, yeah James. Um, Try to teach my son for years that um, we've all got someone to answer to. It's like I know kids, and I was guilty of this too in my senior year of high school. Can't wait to get on my own, so no one can tell me what to do. It's like, well. Actually, you're going to have more bosses when you get older. You're going to have landlords. You're going to have an employer. Um, you have police officers. So when you break the law, they're to remind you of what the law is and then the consequences. Trust me, 
you have more people to answer to when you move out of mom and dad's protection. So it, it's a good thing once you realize that um, the, a hierarchy and you start abandoning egal egalitarianism and just like, you know what, no, there's hierarchies, there's roles, there's functions. We all serve different purposes. Not everyone can be top of the food chain. And when you realize those things, son, you start being more content with where God has you in life. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's nice. It actually brings peace into your life. Yeah, it sure does. To accept your role, accept your place, to understand your, your place in the food chain and all that. Yeah, Bill. Yeah, just, just to piggyback on James. So one thing that I would want my grandson to understand is that good authority is good. It's a protection for the for the for the for, for, for the soul of man and, and for his righteous living. And then even in the in the point that you were making just a little bit ago about how you walk in humility. Well there'd be another point I'd want all the kids to learn. By God's grace, when they save them, they also walk in assurance. That there's that 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 assurance is not a what do I feel like today? It's not based on my feelings. It's based on something that we can point to on the cross in penal substitutionary atonement and say, this happened. This is a historical fact. And because of that, when you confess the name of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, that's an assurance. Right. In the same way that we see the principle of imputation operating in the, the sin and consequence of death and how we all sin and all die by flip that around to the principle of imputation in the righteousness of Christ. That that not only has our sin been imputed to him, and that's valid, that he can act as a representative for me, a substitution for me, and take that sin and die for it, die the death that I deserve. But then he can also, God can also, by that same principle, impute that righteousness to me, and that's valid. And so that's objective. That's an objective principle of the universe. That's how he set it up. And so it's not, like you said, my assurance isn't based on my feelings that come and go. So I'm based on how I wake up this morning or tomorrow morning, I hope it will be better or the next. No, it's based on a fixed principle of the law of governance, of representation that God set up from the very beginning. Man, that's a rock solid assurance. And, and to see that in Christ, it's immutable, that will never fall again. Take that, take that to the bank. So I was talking with the boys, just going through God, man, Christ response yesterday. And consequence. Yeah. Well, yeah. I always talk about consequence as a response because, you know, there's something attached. But yeah. Um, right. And fleshing that out, what, you know, what that looks like in their lives and it shapes their worldview. And you know, how the influences as they get older are going to multiply and the gift that they have in knowing who Christ is and the hope that, that is offered through him, uh, what a mercy it is for, for them. And, and they're just going to grow in that understanding over time. And so you know, as we talk about you know, federal headship and things like that, you know, they can now start attaching on those pegs that you know, just GMCR, you know, C. So. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, that's, it, it really is, it's important to, to teach our kids these principles from a young age, growing up all the way through, whether it's those principles of the gospel, or whether it's a principle like this. And I'll just add this one just for the sake of time that, you know, listen, teach, teach your kids the, uh, 
this principle of representation to appreciate the government we live under, to appreciate the, the, the role of elected authorities and officials who act as our represent, representatives, that that's, maybe they don't, they are not good instantiations of that, of that principle because they have bad character, but vote differently, all right? So teach them about their vote, inform their thinking about voting and the, and the, the benefit of that. I didn't grow up with that. I didn't understand that very well, but I've come to appreciate it more and more. And the reason that I need to teach it to others, teach, teach uh, about the consequences of living under a, a dictator or a monarch or a socialist society or representative democracy like we live in, help them to understand that, help them to understand that when they go to school and they're in an institution that the, the consequences of the school board above them affects the administration and the administration affects the teachers and the teachers affects the classroom and how all that goes. And so when they, when they rise up and say, that's not fair, teach them that there is a, there is, there's something traced down through that whole system to appreciate the institution that they're in and to not be egalitarian and, and, and autonomous little, you know, brats that, that, that criticize everything above them, but to actually appreciate the fact that there is order and authority and structure and that God designed this as good. Teach them to submit the principle of authority and submission, and that that's a good principle, even though we see bad examples of certain authorities and those who don't submit. So it goes both ways. So we see bad examples going both directions. Teach all these things. Um, what's the danger in rejecting these concepts? The danger is, and this, this is a serious danger, Pelagianism is a rejection, a repudiation of everything we've just taught today. Semi-Pelagianism, which you see in the Roman Catholic system, in Arminianism, semi-Pelagianism basically says there is no imputation uh, of Adam's guilt. The, the, the principle of, of reckoning Adam's guilt to the rest of the human race, that does not exist. Semi-Pelagianism says, well, some of it true and some of it not. Man can still find that principle of the divine or the principle of goodness or whatever in him to make a good decision. So making make decisionism, decisionistic thinking comes from Arminianism. Arminianism comes from its Roman Catholicism has codified the whole thing and it's semi-Pelagian. So the denial of original sin, the denial of the principle of imputation, these are things that exist with us all the time. They keep repackaging and rehearsing. And, you know, N.T. Wright was the, was the, the latest one to do this in my, in my estimation. And, and that became very popular in what he taught is denying imputation. But, the, but these principles we're talking about today, I think, I think can very well be demonstrated biblically and theologically. And I think we need to adhere to them. Um, but you, you, you deny them at, your, at, at a great demise to your thinking, at a great demise to anybody who's going to listen to you. So don't be very careful in how you handle these doctrines, okay? We're going to pick this up next time. We'll get into this concept of probation, whether it was valid offer, those kind of things. We'll get into that next time. Father, thank you so much for helping us through today and helping us to understand and interact with uh, these, these concepts. And I just pray that uh, as the men kind of percolate on this, uh, in, in time to come that you would help them in their thinking, in their reasoning to understand uh, your great wisdom and the great assurance that you intend uh, to ground our salvation in. 
that it is in these uh, great uh, principles of governance, of representation, of covenant, um, in how you relate to humanity, and particularly in what you intended for your people in Christ, um, we have no greater assurance and we need none other. We thank you, Father, for your kindness to us in him and ask that you would help us not only to understand, but then to think through the implications and teach these to others as well, uh, that we might see you as all glorious and see Christ as our majestic, uh, as, as Joe put it, our majestic champion. We thank you for uh, the time we've had this morning and ask for your blessing upon our days. In Jesus' name, amen.